Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, and pretty much how we drew it up, uh, Florida 1-0 in SEC play. <laughs> I mean, if we were just looking for storylines and uh, talking points for the podcast, I-, I guess this would be something you'd look for, but uh, uh, watching that game stressed out like the rest of us, I don't think that's, uh, that's exactly what the doctor ordered, but uh, when you win and you come in on the right side of that, uh, it-, it feels amazing, so... Uh, yeah, just just like we drew it up. <laughs> um, before we talk about the the largest, I mean, it was like the largest in multiple things. It tied the largest overcome first half deficit deficit in school history. It was the largest uh, comeback victory in school history. Uh, Florida was down forty six to twenty five uh, at one point uh, in the game, and I think forty three twenty two. I may be mistaken about that, but. Um, in any event, they certainly were down by 21 points at one point. Um, come back to win, but let's 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 start with what went wrong. I mean, for me, uh, you know, kind of a wholesale failure in the first half on both sides of the of the ball. Yeah, I, I do think that there was uh, there was problems on both sides of the ball. I, I would say offensively. Uh, one thing that really hurt was was still the shot selection. I, I thought that there was so many mid-range jump shots. And when you see Alabama on the other side taking a lot of threes and you're you're trading threes that they got some pretty good looks at for uh, for contested twos, I mean, that's tough. And, and Florida had some uh, – I mean, Andrew Nembhardt, I think we'll get into this maybe a little bit more, but that first half from him was uh, was just baffling. He had – some some just mindless turnovers that you're just not expecting to see from him. So that obviously ruined some flow. And uh, uh, d- defensively, I thought Florida got right a ton, especially with their their pick and roll defense. Something that I you know I've talked about a lot and been kind of closely monitoring. Something that they like haven't really done a lot this year, but they did against Alabama was trap pick and rolls, where the the person guarding the screener would go and double team the ball handler. And I did not think it went well. I thought that they were pretty soft with their doubles. Uh, the only person who actually did it really, really well was Dante Bassett. But unfortunately, he wasn't in the game for a long time. But he was the one guy who, who really actively doubled and trapped and, and made the defense work. Um, guys, you know, going to double with their hands below their waist, uh, with uh, the primary ball handler, hands below their waist. Uh, Alabama was just whipping passes over top of them, getting four and three situations. And that's how you get, get threes and layups. So uh, those are a couple of the things that I kind of saw going wrong in the, in the first half. Yeah, I thought Florida was also really affected by uh, Alabama's ability to switch. Um, particularly, something I texted you about was, was I was just really impressed with Herb Jones. I did not think that he was that elite def- uh, defender. Obviously, we, we knew Vito Holden was, was very good defensively. But, um, you know, I had watched a couple Alabama games and hadn't really seen them defend at the level that they defended at in the first half. I thought they, they were terrific. Some of the problems were compounded by Florida. I thought you mentioned shot selection. Um, again, I still feel like when Florida's stagnant, a lot of times, Eric, they're stagnant because their cuts off rolls, actions, you know, their cuts off screening actions um, are not great. Uh, and so, you know, I thought not really enough movement off the basketball um, and off their screening actions. Plus, uh, you know, Alabama did some nice things defensively. Well, they really, uh, really pressured the ball. Um, something that uh, they, they really pressured the ball, really yeah. got into ball handlers uh, a whole lot more, more than Quez Glover did on the cylinder call. Um, so we can maybe <laughs> talk 
about the technical foul ever, but but Alabama really was getting into the kitchen of Florida's ball handlers, uh, and then uh, uh, which also allowed them to really send uh, their their help was like really sitting in the paint, uh, and I think that they were kind of gambling that Florida wasn't going to be able to make that cross court skip pass because they applied so much ball pressure, uh, because it's really tough to uh, to throw like a looping skip pass with or you know. A skip pass with hopefully some pace that's that's not a looping pass uh when you're really kind of getting crowded so i thought that they were just really really aggressive on the ball uh and because they were so aggressive it allowed them to to really sit in help side uh kind of gambling that florida wasn't gonna be able to make those skip passes and uh yeah and i when florida had the open looks they softened up the defense they they didn't hit them that kind of made alabama feel a little bit more confident and, and could just that they could keep cranking up the pressure and uh that yeah that all kind of went to what was a uh, a, di- a difficult half for the Gators. Yeah, and then Florida with one assist in the first half. I think you uh, you alluded to something. I tweeted about it in, in real time from the game. And um, I, I really actually thought it was the worst half of basketball that I've seen Andrew Nibar play in Florida. I, I just thought shot selection, pass decisions, um, you know, just not aggressive when there were chances to be aggressive, uh, just wholesale bad. Uh, we're going to, I'm sure, I know we're going to get to good Andrew Nibhart, who showed up, really great Andrew Nibhart showed up. But, uh, wow, just a really frustrating first half for a lot of Florida players. Quite honestly, I, you mentioned Bassett. I thought uh, Noah Locke had some bad closeouts late in the game, but played pretty well, I thought. For 40 minutes and might have been like the only other guy that I would say that about. Yeah, I think Noah Locke uh, had the Kyra Lewis assignments a lot of the game and did really, really well with that. Uh, so, so for that reason, I will, I will give Noah Locke, yeah, I, I played a really good game. Uh, someone I did think that got really abused uh, defensively was, was Kerry Blackshear. Uh, yeah. And I mean, he was put in some tough spots because uh, he had Herb Jones, he had to guard Herb Jones, especially in the, uh, uh, the two-man game. And or sorry, when they played the two bigs, and then he was putting a lot of screen and rolls, but uh, he was he was stuck having to guard Herb Joe's on on the perimeter, having to close out. And I mean, uh, that was something where you know it was when he was on the floor early, and and uh, uh, that's where in Alabama or really went on the you know the uh, initial run. And it was actually when he picked up his fourth foul and had to leave the game uh, that Florida kind of got back into it in the second. And, uh, I'm not saying that like Terry Blackshear played a great offensive game and, and had some really good moments actually in, in the overtime periods, uh, defensively where he was guarding on the perimeter pretty well. Uh, but he had some also very exploitable moments and, and Alabama, Nate Oates, who I thought coached a really good game. Uh, he was very ready to, to pick on that, uh, mismatch. And I think that's, uh, that, yeah, Florida got hurt, hurt there a few times. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree with that. I do want to talk a little bit about, about, Blackshear in the second half and in, in the overtime periods uh, moving forward, but kind of wrapping up the first half, Florida doesn't also doesn't hit a three pointer until the final moments of the first half, which uh, you know, while the shot selection was poor, I thought Florida took a lot of inefficient long twos in the first half. I didn't count them. Um, I'm sure Eric looked at that closer than I did, but. You know, then they also, when they had good possessions, Quest Glover missed, what, two wide-open threes in the first half, um, both of which kind of would have stunted Alabama runs. Uh, Alabama really had two extended runs. And so I guess my other criticism would be just kind of coaching-related. You know, 
another game where I wasn't thrilled with the way that Florida used their timeouts. Well, I mean, the first timeout came at the 21-point mark with 2.19 left in the first half. <laughs> I, once again, like this, I, there has to be a reason behind why Mike White doesn't want to use timeouts. Like, there, there, there just has to be because um, I'm just not sure how when Alabama has that first 14-0 run, uh, when the lead swells, uh, and, and you use your first time out with two minutes and 19 seconds left in the first half when you're down 21. Like, it's 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 crazy. And one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, on the, you know, on the Alabama side, uh, so Florida in that second half, they come out with a bang. Uh, they had a few runs, but it just seemed like Florida could not get out of, like, you know, they'd make a big run, and you're like, oh, they're down, down eight. Oh, they're going to make the push. Oh, they momentum. The lead went uh, Alabama's lead got back to 13 or 14. Then Florida would make another push. They'd get, get it to eight, uh, and they could they just uh, couldn't keep it going. And it's because uh, uh, Nate Oates used two timeouts in the first, like, 10 minutes of the second half when Florida was making the runs. And I just thought it was, like, quite a wise decision to uh, by, by Oates who clearly saw that, like, yeah, I'm going to use these timeouts to stop runs. And I think he stopped some Florida runs with his timeout usage. Yeah. Uh, so just kind of it was kind of interesting to see how Florida uh, – uh, you know, didn't use their timeouts to stop runs, and that allowed Alabama to just continue to pile on and pile on in the first half. And then uh, you see how how difficult it was for Florida to get back into the game because Oates was using timeouts. So, uh, I mean, obviously, some people are going to look and say, like, hey, it's a good thing at the end of the game they had all these timeouts. Uh, but, I mean, like, hey, I- I'm going to play the odds. Like, hey, if a game goes to down to the wire that you were once down 21 points and you've got your timeouts, like, uh, I've got to play the odds that uh, if you're down that much, you should be using your timeouts earlier. I know it kind of looked like it worked in this game, but uh, just overall, but uh, I just, there, there's got to be some, there, there's got to be some reason why White does use timeouts the way he does. Uh, because I, like, this is just another game where I was, I was just mystified. He didn't use the timeouts so late. So he's clearly got some, some thought process behind it. I'd really be interested in what it is. Uh, but yeah, on the surface, uh, not a, not a big fan as people at the uh, the podcast know and people who were tweeting at me yesterday during the first half and like, hey, do you think he'll use a timeout? Do you think he'll use a timeout? And then let you know like, hey, what did you think of him waiting until uh, the two nineteen mark? So uh, it's uh, it's definitely becoming a little bit of a thing. Indeed, it is. Uh, second half, uh, really strong start for Florida. I thought it was huge. Uh, I mean, obviously, inner half down to 14, but the Gators essentially went on a 13-0 run the last, well, from the timeout to the first Nate Oates timeout. So uh, Florida cuts it to eight, and I thought you know, just ran good offense to get it down to eight the first time, and I think, I really felt like once they got it under double digits once, Eric, I know Alabama was able to extend it multiple times back into double digits, but that kind of set the tone to me for the whole half. Like, I feel like that was huge for the players to understand that this was very much a winnable game still. Yeah, well, I mean, the players came out of the half uh, playing confident. Like, I was actually really impressed. They came out with a lot of fire. So I think that whatever the coaching staff said, they had their guys believing that it could turn around. And uh, I think that's really good for the long term because whatever happened at the half, the coaching staff clearly made the players think that they were in the game and, and had an opportunity to win and they ended up winning. So they're, they're going to continue to trust the staff. So I think that that is uh, whatever they did, whatever they said, whatever film clips they showed uh, were all, I think really effective. So uh, I also think like, man, the rowdies were like into it. So good too. So the energy was, uh, was awesome. At the, so the start of the second half happened. Yeah. Awesome crowd. And, and 
And I mean, when Florida hit the first bucket, uh, it, it felt like it was a one point game. It didn't feel like it was still double digits. Like it, it was uh, so, 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 you know, big shout out to the crowd, uh, big shout out to the Rowdies. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I do think that part of the, part of the situation too was Alabama hitting like, I forgot, oh, I forgot the number, but I mean, there was a stretch where they were making like over 60% of their threes in the first half. And it's ended that, you know, Florida was hitting 0% until that, uh, right. that, that last three late. So you kind of know, like, hey, you know, like people are gonna joke about, hey, you know, Florida's never gonna hit threes. Well, you know, they are gonna hit more than zero percent, and Alabama's a good shooting team, not gonna keep shooting sixty percent. So I think you could have expected those numbers to balance out, and uh, and uh, that that's when it kind of came into play too throughout the uh, the you know sample size of the second half. But uh, yeah, definitely a team that came out confident in the second. A couple other things that that I thought were pretty interesting get into some individual performances after that. Uh, you know, you, you just alluded to Alabama at 60%, really 32 minutes of basketball had been played, and they were 11 of 23 from three-point range. So that's, what, three-quarters of a game where they're shooting basically 50% from three. Um, it's hard to beat someone when that's happening. And it also makes that offense so much more devastating because Florida, and we've talked about it really uh, – maybe too much on the pod, Eric, about how, you know, the Gators do have kind of a dearth of, of wings. And so uh, it can be sometimes hard for them to start stop, to stop athletic straight line drivers. Uh, you magnify that by the way you have to defend the floor and maintain your floor balance when a team is shooting like Alabama is. Uh, and it, it's kind of a confluence of, it's like the perfect storm. Of bad right i mean you got to either play the gaps and to help it on the ball handler or you, or you take away shooters and uh alabama makes that tough and they especially make it tough when they uh when they kind of get that early offense where they push off the break so you're already kind of backpedaling trying to find checks and not only are you trying to find your check but you are you trying to locate if you're in a help position if you should be denying one pass away uh you know if you're on a shooter you have to identify that so uh, yeah, so definitely, uh, definite moments like that that made uh, made things tough to guard. And uh, you know, I thought Jaden Shackelford was was really good, really good as a freshman for for Alabama. Yeah. We know Kyron Lewis is good, and, and I mean John Petty, uh, just an, an absolutely incredible shooting start to the to, to the season. I thought Florida actually played him pretty well on some of his shots, and uh, uh, and he still hit them. I mean, he had one in overtime where uh, he relocated on Andrew Nemhard, and, and he lost him and, and got him open that way, and uh, that was a big three. But uh, but overall, I thought they played him pretty well, and he still hit a change. It was interesting that that you know both Andrew Nimhard and Scotty Lewis, who was available to the media, kind of talked about that White didn't go into halftime and and you know um, melt the paint off the walls. Basically, they just uh, made some adjustments. You know, Nimhard didn't really get into it. Scotty Lewis mentioned floor balance, which was interesting. Um, which I guess is, is kind of what you're saying. Like, you know, a lot of times in their transition offense, they would get Florida would attack the glass with like two or three guys. And you'd have two guys back that are like floor balance guys to make sure that you're not getting caught out in transition. And Alabama was beating those guys back pretty consistently uh, in the opening half, less so in the second half, I thought. Um, although I think early in the second half, there was one Kyra Lewis layup where like you saw why he play in the NBA and then he missed the shot but like that didn't happen nearly as consistently in the second half so Florida 
picked its defense up, but then clawed back in the game uh, offensively. Yeah, some some timely shot making for sure. And I, one thing that I thought that they did really well and uh, was you know continuing to go to the well that is the Carrie Blackshear and Andrew Nemhart pick and roll. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that they did it a little bit differently. I know, I know they did some spread ball screen, but like they normally do, but, uh, we talked about it on the last podcast and, uh, but what they did was, uh, with two bigs on the floor with, uh, with Omar Payne kind of planting himself on the, uh, uh right on the front side of the paint while, while Andrew Nimhard, uh, runs a pick and roll with Blackshear. And there was a couple of times where, uh, you know, Omar Payne is occupying the, uh, the primary help defender and Nimhart hits Blackshear on the roll. Who's got an easy one. And then there was another play where, uh, Andrew Nemhart got right to the rim, and Omar Payne, you know, again sealed the help. So Andrew Nemhart got right to the hoop for a layup. So uh, I actually thought that was really interesting to see. That I thought that was uh, that was really effective for them. Uh, was was not the uh, not as much the the you know the typical spread ball screen, but uh, but yeah, play, uh, playing with the two bigs, putting Omar Payne on the down on the low block and, get, and getting that seal. I, th- I thought they got some good looks out of it. So uh, I think that there's going to be stretches where they need to keep playing two bigs and. Uh, it was good to see them have some uh, some success offensively, but uh, yeah, what, what do you th- what did well, you see offensively in the second? Uh, well, I thought Andrew Nimhart was more aggressive, um, and I thought that's out of the, out of some of their horn sets, they did a nice job of of getting Nimhart curling around on like, like handoff actions or like quasi handoff actions, right? Where he kind of had he could make the choice to attack the basket uh, or. Or dump, they ran a bunch of them where they dumped back to Blackshear. And instead of shooting the three, which he did a bunch in the first half, and I didn't like the necessarily the shot selection, I thought uh, I thought Florida was a little more patient offensively in the second half. And a lot of times I felt like that paid off. Yeah, I, I really think so. Uh, you know, like Herb Jones is a fantastic defender. Uh, some of these guys aren't great defenders on Alabama. And I thought that just showing patience and – uh, and making them defend for an entire shot clock was uh, was giving the Gators good looks. I, I think that early in the game, Florida was, you know, not only, oh, I forgot to mention the number. They had 20, and I know this is overtime, and there was some shots in overtime, but they finished with 23 two-point jump shots, Florida did. And I know some of those came at key moments and and, and fell, uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's a lot of two-point jumpers. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I just thought not only were some of those shots not great in the first half, but they just came so early in the clock before they made Alabama right. work. And uh, when you've got a team that's not a great offensive – or sorry, not a great defensive team like Alabama, I, I right. do think you've got to make them work. I think you when you play against a team that's not great at guarding in the half court and you take a shot in the first 10 seconds, you're actually kind of bailing them out a little bit. Uh, you're usually only involving one or two defenders in any action that you're going to take in the first 10 seconds. So – uh, you work the ball around for 20 seconds and you're making all five guys defend. And when you don't have a great defensive team, uh, that's where errors can happen and you can get open, open shots. And I think that uh, that Florida did that. And, and once again, that's uh, that's some trust in, in Coach White and what he's doing and some poise from the players to continue to play patient and play poise uh, when you're down, you know, double digits in the second half because that's usually, you know, you know players can feel like, hey, we need to, you know, put up this three quick. We need to... Uh, put our head down and try to get to the rim. Uh, but really, it was kind of like, hey, there's a lot of time left. There's a lot of possessions. Uh, we can be patient and get good looks. And obviously, it paid off. Um, Florida, you know, Florida, but for all the fight, Florida was still down 11 points with about eight minutes to go in the game when uh, Mike White was called for a technical foul um, on the absolutely ridiculous 
cylinder call on Quest Glover. And, uh, you know, that you, you alluded to it. I mean, Florida, with Lomar Payne on the floor, um, you know, they, they sparked a comeback. And really, like, even in the possessions before that, you were kind of wondering where the offense was going to come from. Well, it, it ended up coming from Andrew Nimhart, who entered, post, entered the technical foul, or I should say, after, when the technical foul happened, I can't talk today, Eric, um, Nimhart had 10 points. And, you know, senior, I, I call him a senior like he's a senior. <laughs> he's sophomore. Uh, really kind of just uh, took the game over after that. I was like, just a totally different player, I felt like, in the last eight minutes. There's well, honestly, I, this is one thing where I, 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 this is one area where I really do think that uh, that getting the technical foul actually really did help because part of the reason that I think Andrew Nemhart was struggling in the first half uh, was because he was getting crowded uh, so aggressively by, by Alabama's perimeter defenders. And, yeah. you know, they have guys with size and length and speed and they were getting right up into him and, and making it tough to play basketball. Um, I don't think that they were next necessarily fouling him or I don't think the refs were, were missing obvious stuff on Nemhart. But as soon as they call an egregious cylinder call on, on Quez Glover and, and, and White goes nuts, uh, suddenly, you know, Alabama wasn't, uh, wasn't able to, uh, to defend the same way because I think they knew that call would be coming their way. I mean, if, uh, if someone, if, if, you know, Quez Glover is in arm's length away and the, the player dips his shoulder that far into Quez Glover and gets a cylinder call, I think they're like, oh, I better, you know, get off of Andrew Nemhart. So I thought he got a little bit more space and, and was able to operate uh, that way. So, uh, you know what? I actually don't think that, like, the way I saw it, I don't actually think that White was, like, trying to get a technical. I know that's always the, like, talk when a coach gets a, a technical is just, like, was he trying to get it? I actually don't think that White was trying to get that technical. Uh, but I but I do think that, you know, him going after the refs there, I, I actually think had great results because uh, once Andrew Nemhart got a little bit more space, uh, he was able to really operate. Well, you know, when the technical happened, um, you know, it was funny, like, it's about 30 seconds before the technical, you know, and, and I didn't, this is right before the Glover thing, I guess, uh, I, I tweeted something along the lines of it's like 28 to 13 in free throws right now. And I said, that's unusual given that, you know, Alabama's 257th in foul rate, so they foul a lot. Uh, it seemed kind of odd that there was that disproportionate amount. So they draw, they, you know, they have a high number of fouls drawn, but usually what that ends up being is about even when you're a team that profiles like Alabama, which is kind of the point I was making, Eric. And, and you know, Nato said um, that, that he, you know, his staff counted 15 of the 20 whistles after the technical win against Alabama. Uh, so Florida ends up, I think, almost evening out the free throws in the over the 50 minutes and uh, shot their free throws really well. But, but I would agree with you. That was not – White had been working the refs most of the game. He was very animated and heated uh, on the bench. It was about as intense as I've seen him in a home game in a while. And and I, you know, he said uh, following the game that that uh, that he told McCuber that was not planned. Uh, he didn't want to talk about how the he didn't want to frame it as like the team responded to him getting a technical. Uh, but I do think that you make a tremendous point that I hadn't really thought of, which is that did seem to affect the way that the game was called, which uh, helped Andrew Nimhart a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the, the, kind of the reason that I didn't think he was trying to get a technical is normally when you see coaches like trying to get a technical, it's just like 
you know, they're yelling at the ref, like, uh, you're trash. That's a bad call. Uh, you know, like lots of expletives. And it's just like, uh, essentially like, uh, you know, you're terrible. Why are you doing this to my team? Whatever. Where white was really like, they have been crowding our guys like that all game and you haven't called it once. And that was kind of like, you know, he was just putting facts out there. He was just saying like, Hey, like, where's, uh, th that's been happening all game called it why do you call that in the second half at, at this point uh so i don't know the way just like the way he like approached it uh it still yeah. was like it, it didn't really seem like he was trying to get a technical so uh and i do think that uh, that's really just not you know it's, it's not really his demeanor and, and you can kind of see that in the way that he didn't want it to be framed like hey yeah i got a technical to fire my guys up uh i, I actually really like i love white for that reason like i, I love that he's not that guy that uh goes out and, and does that uh, and I mean, my last take is, I mean, like, look at some of the other uh, <laughs> the other coaches uh, across the country or look at some in the SEC. Uh, I mean, they say far worse than what White did all game and they don't get a technical. And I do think that's something that's like very unfortunate about actually being like a more mild mannered coach is like the one time where White does that, he gets a technical where like that'll come 30 times from another coach and uh, and it won't get called because, you know, the refs aren't going to call 30 technicals a game. So uh, I, I did think that was unfortunate for White. Uh, I, I, I do. I really like that. He wasn't trying to frame it as like, Oh yeah, I fired up my guys and they responded to that tech. Uh, but I do think that the game was officiated differently. It's something I definitely noticed on my, on my second watch. Uh, did I just thought Nemhart was noticeably getting more space and, uh, and he knew what to do with it. And, and that's what really kind of changed things for Florida's offense. Yeah. I mean, I also thought it, it certainly benefited Kerry Blackshear, um, who I thought the way they were calling the game, earlier probably gets called now his fourth foul is a horrible call too by oh. the way um like i i don't first of all it was really late uh second of all it was on back side after the shot so it's just not a call that's really made that much uh not even certainly not in high school games where the, the referees are theoretically not as good and um <laughs> i don't see it called very much collegiately but you know, Alabama went after Kerry Blackshear pretty consistently when he had four fouls, and I thought Kerry did play some of his best defense of the season uh, late in the game and in the overtimes and, and managed to not foul out, Eric. Yeah, which is huge because uh, his work on the offensive end was great, and it, it was interesting that I, I, I really think he struggled defensively, in the, for honestly, for the bulk of the game. Sure. Uh, and, and I thought I just thought, you know, her. Herbert Jones was going downhill all day just because he was uh, able to either dribble the ball and, and get by Blackshear or uh, or something that they did really well was like uh, talking about snapping to the ball, something that uh, that coaches talk about lots when it comes to attacking a mismatch. Uh, instead of if you get a mismatch with a bigger guy on you, uh, instead of just dribbling him down and make a move, uh, you swing the ball, you back up. And then you get the ball reversed back to you, and then you start running and attacking downhill. So you can you can really get that speed advantage, uh, and that was something that they were doing, which again showed me that they were really prepared for this matchup and and were prepared to attack it. Uh, but yeah, so you know, I, I thought he struggled defensively for most of the game, and then on tired legs, the it, it kind of both of the overtime periods, he he got he was uh, he was stuck one on one on some guards, and uh, he sat down in the stands and made some defensive plays so uh that's something that i think is going to be really big for last year because i don't think he's ever going to be a great defender i mean a you know fifth year senior uh, at this point i don't think he's going to be able to really flick a switch and, and become just a uh, an awesome defender uh but i think he can be a good defender that can make big plays when florida needs it and i thought he made big defensive plays when they, when they needed it yeah i mean 
I agree, and he was also tenacious on the glass, which Florida needed. Uh, 24 points, 16 rebounds. I mean, yes, they, they, they played longer than an NBA game, but that's a pretty ridiculous stat line in NBA time, too. So, um, you know, first time since the Donovan era that Florida has three double-doubles, uh, that Horford, Brewer, and Noah uh, triumvirate. Shouldn't surprise anybody that they were the last to do it. Uh, but last night, Florida gets it from three people who had kind of totally different games, I thought, interestingly. Keontae Johnson ends up with a double-double. Most of his damage came with, like, two minutes to go and in the overtimes. And then Scotty Lewis, who played his best game as a Gator, did he not? Oh, yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think... What are your thoughts on on uh, young Scotty's performance? Because we should all be encouraged. Oh yeah, I mean he's just another player that uh, I, I think thrives in these games where it, it gets slower and more physical. Um, I I actually just a quick pivot um, for those people who want to see Florida play extremely fast and have been talking about it all year. Uh, you've got to see the way that this Alabama game went and see what happens to teams that rely on playing fast because Alabama is a team that wants to play fast uh, and they just preach like, you know, you know speed, speed, speed. Uh, well, when it gets to the final two minutes of a close game and it gets to overtime and double overtime, uh, you're probably not going to run down the court, get a flare screen and hit a, or, you know, shoot a 26 foot contested three. Uh, and I think that you can tell that Alabama was not as comfortable when the game slowed down and Florida was far more comfortable when the game slowed down. And that is one thing for people who think that Florida should just run and run and run. Uh, something that they need to keep in mind is that if you get all your, if you're so reliant on transition for offense, uh, you're not going to be able to in crunch time the games. So anyway, so when, when it kind of got slow and more, more grindy at the end of the game and in those overtimes, uh, Scotty Lewis just thrived with his offensive rebounding uh, with the way he battled for loose balls. Uh, with just kind of the way he kept the energy up on the team uh, and showed leadership that way. Uh, and even, you know, was able to able to hit a key shot and uh, just a, a, a lot of great, uh, great elements. For this game. Yeah, that was a really big shot because he had he had taken a really bad shot before, but come down and gotten a shot block on the other end, which helped Florida get a stop. And then uh, Alabama really slagged off of him and, and he buries the triple. Uh, so that was good to see. And, and then I thought it was almost as if that shot gave him the confidence to do what he should be doing offensively, which we talked about, is that, you know, he is a talented straight-line driver because he's still very quick. I mean, I, I do think that's got to be his, his primary primary offensive weapon is when he gets the ball in the wing and he attacks a closeout. Uh, I know he really likes the, uh, the dribble pull-up. Uh, I, I don't think that's a great shot for him, though it's, uh, it's you know, he's shown he can hit it sometimes. Uh, but I, I think that just being a, being a straight-line driver, uh, he's going to be able to get by a lot of guys. And uh, I think the next kind of evolution for him that uh, we started to see uh, is that he's got to do that against, uh, you know, when he gets a, a mismatch. When, uh, when teams switch, he gets a bigger guy on him. He just has to be able to use his straight-line speed. He doesn't have to show any any shake or shimmy to his dribble game. Uh, he gets a mismatch. He can just attack it in a straight line. So uh, I think that uh, a performance like this will really help his offense uh, or his offensive confidence. I think it'll help the uh, the team's confidence in him. And, uh, yeah, he was just a huge part of winning. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing that, you know, one of the uh, one of the things I thought that happened last night with that is that if you can get guys 
you know, Noah Locke is another guy who did a nice job of, instead of hunting floaters, he did a nice job of getting into the paint and drawing help and then kicking um, last night, I thought, pretty consistently. And so, like, I want him to do that. I don't want him to hunt those bad shots. You know, I know he really likes to take that floater, but but Florida, part of the maturation process, Eric, is is learning learning who you are as a player. You know, we talked about it a lot with DeAndre Ballard. Ballard. We talked about it a ton with Kayvon Allen, probably four podcasts full of, of that, right, with, with, uh, with K5. And Florida is now in the top 30s in Ken Palm offensive efficiency into the top 45 on the Haslam metrics offensive efficiency. So they're getting to where they're quite a bit better offensively uh, despite the fact that there's going to be pushed back on the algorithm now because more seasons have played. And some of that, I think, is, you know, guys are kind of figuring out what, what their role is and how they can impact winning. And that's that's what's so valuable about a game like last night to me. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, well, actually, one thing that I thought was really, really funny about these, like, double overtime games where there's a lot of free throws uh, is that it actually really pads your offense numbers when teams are trading free throws back and forth because free throws are really efficient way to uh to score so florida actually ended the game at 1.13 points per possession which is like a really really good offensive performance which is like not really indicative of how they played uh but because of these uh those like so many free throws at the end of the game it got to really pad it up but that uh hey that helps their numbers and uh it helps them in the net because they factor in offensive uh, efficiency so uh i i think that uh i think that that is uh you know, kind of just something that, that that's funny from ha- that that happened from the game. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it, it helps. I, I just think you know when you look at when you look at the way that Florida played last night, especially in the second half, you just had guys doing things that they're capable of doing uh, a lot more. You know, you know, a lot less forcing things. And I think um, you know, obviously that's immense. And and the other thing they did. Now I know. And I mentioned him, he, he certainly impacted the game defensively. He was, I thought he was Florida's best defender last night. I want to talk about Omar Payne in a second. Um, but but Keontae Johnson, I thought, was Florida's best defender. Uh, he, he ends up in double-digit rebounds. He impacted winning last night for a while. Um, but he doesn't find anything offensively until he, he hits a huge three-pointer. Um, and then he makes a couple big threes, gets the goaltend call early in the second overtime and you know all that's really good what's better to me is that even though it was unorthodox Florida kind of found a way to win on a night where Keontae wasn't his best as a scorer yeah the the thing about Keontae Johnson within Florida's offense is that he doesn't get plays ran for him he's not someone who uh, gets involved as a pick and roll ball handler too often or and they sometimes do use him off the curl uh, whether it be those kind of the like horns pin downs or uh, or out of the Princeton uh, he sometimes gets used as, as a as a guy who gets the curl but but not as the or primary option so play. yeah so he's not so much right so, so it, it's not like he gets a ton of plays called for him so a lot of his offense is the ball gets moving and he does what I've you know preached on the podcast for two years that I just absolutely love about Keontae Johnson and it's his ability to attack closeouts so uh, for him to really be effective offensively Florida needs to kind of get through their possession or progressions and get the ball moving so in the first half, when I thought they, they settled for a lot of quick shots and played the game at a pace that Alabama wanted it to be played, is that there was just not opportunities for Keontae Johnson to uh, to have the ball swung to him and then give him a chance to attack a close 
comes out. He he's just someone who is not going to get the ball very often if Florida is going to play the the quick shot game because just because he doesn't get the, the he's not a you know he's not bringing the ball up the court and he's not someone who's going to get a play call for him. So uh, I did I think that he was someone who did benefit from uh from the way that Florida uh kind of slowed down a little bit in the second half. Uh, and I mean that goaltend play that you mentioned was a perfect example. He caught the ball. You know, it wasn't a play that was ran for him. He caught the ball. It got swung to him. He attacked the closeout. Um, I forget who that was. If it was, it was Petty or Fred who had the goaltend. Who, but but you know he got he got a step behind Keontae Johnson. You know Johnson beats him, and uh, there's there's the goaltend. So I thought that it was just uh, he he's someone who kind of needs Florida to to get through there uh, to get deeper into their offense for him to get involved. Uh, but one thing too, I mean, he, he was someone who, like you mentioned, didn't really, you know, have any offense coming his way. Uh, but he never tried to force it. I thought he moved the ball and passed it uh, unselfishly when he did get it. And it, he, he was someone who, uh, you know, is has been a primary scorer kind of for this team, uh, at least in terms of point production. And uh, when he wasn't getting shots, I kind of thought he might start hunting things. But when he did get the ball, he moved it really unselfishly. So I thought that was a uh, kind of a very mature element to his game. And then obviously he ended up hitting some, uh, some big buckets at the end. Yeah. I mean, staying within yourself again, um, just something that Keontae has kind of always done well. And, but, but at the same time, you know, you do need his production at the margins. I think he's been so huge. I, you know, Florida is one in three in games where he hasn't scored in double figures. Uh, certainly for a while last night, it looked like it would be one in four. And then Keontae ends up getting uh getting to double figures and closing out things um, with a double-double. So, you know, I guess the player that I would close with is Omar Payne and, and a good way to, to talk about the end of the game, I think, because one situation where after Locke makes a tremendous steal, uh, and it was Coach Minty, I should shout out. He's, you know, I have no idea what he said. It was way too loud in the building, Eric. But I know after Locke made the layup, Minty jumps off the bench and points at Kyra Lewis and yells something at Omar Payne. And so it ends up being Omar Payne uh, with the defense there. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing, I, I'm really interested at what coach had to scout for this game because <laughs> I think that Noah Locke's steal and layup at the end of regulation was, like, all because of the scout. Like, I mean, obviously, it was a great play by Noah Locke. Uh, it was actually an even bigger play by the other players who denied um, the initial options that Alabama wanted. Uh, but uh, Florida, to me, very clearly knew exactly what Alabama was going to run because uh, when they started to do their actions, Florida was jumping to switches. And what I mean by that is, like, sometimes, you know, the team that's uh, – the offensive team sets screens and then the defensive team, uh, you know, realizes they're getting screened and then they respond to it by having to switch. Uh, Florida wasn't doing that. They were jumping to their switches. They knew where the screens were coming from, and they jumped in the lane before the screen even came. Um, so those options weren't there. And then, uh, and then they obviously had to try to throw it to the safety, and Noah Locke was there and, and kind of knew what was coming, and he stole the ball. Uh, and one other thing that you kind of jarred my memory with uh, talking about the coaching and as well as Omar Payne is in a lot of those situations, uh, teams would not want the ball to be thrown uh, onto their side of the court. So, like, Florida would want to have Omar Payne making sure that the ball was going forward towards Florida's hoop. Uh, but instead, he was totally giving away that pass, and, and he was sitting in the, uh, the backcourt, making it really difficult for Alabama to throw it into the backcourt, uh, which ultimately landed them to, uh, or made them have to, have to try to throw it to their safety. So um, whoever had to scout on that from Florida's staff, uh, just a really, really good job of knowing that that was coming. 
and a really good job by the players to execute. But uh, yeah, Omar Payne, again, has some big blocks. Uh, is just a, a, a defender at the rim that uh, has some moments that are very Kavarius Hayes-esque, uh, just yeah. with his length and ability to, to, to read shots and, and get them right at the top of the, right before they're coming down, like, you know, where it's like almost a goal 10, but isn't, but he just has that length and jumping ability. And uh, yeah, I, I just thought there were some really impactful plays, especially in the second half when, uh, when Kerry Blackshear went out with his fourth foul, the, uh, the phantom foul. Uh, I thought that there yeah. was some really good defensive moments. Yeah, no, you know, another another outstanding performance, I thought, from Omar. Um, you know, and, and again, a guy I could isolate as is, is one of the guys that I thought kind of came to play from from the start. Um, Jordan Press wanted to ask about that, about the scout, and I think you kind of answered his question was, what did you think about Noah Locke saying that, that he knew what play Alabama was going to run there just based on how they were lined up? And uh, in Mike White's press conference, you know, White kind of deflected the, the credit for that. But I think uh, Jordan asked if he was just being modest, and I guess we both kind of think so. Like, it certainly seemed like something that Florida knew, knew was coming out. And, you know, I saw somebody that said, oh, well, Alabama successfully inbounded it, like, the first few times. And, you know, I kind of take issue with that. Like, on the contrary, on one of those occasions, Kyra Lewis, they didn't want at the free throw line, and he was caught in a trap, so they had to call a timeout, like. So the results weren't particularly successful on each occasion. And then on the last one, uh, yeah, Florida comes up with a steal on the, on the law pass. Yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't actually know. I, did, I didn't see the postgame stuff. So to hear, uh, to hear Noah Locke say he knew oh, players wow. around, uh, that, that's definitely, definitely what it looked like. Uh, but, I mean, yeah. I actually went back to watch their game against I, Iowa State and then uh, as well as the last few minutes in North Carolina. Uh, this was after the game. I didn't do this preemptively. Uh, but I wanted to see if uh, if they if uh, if Alabama played uh, use the same inbound there, and, and I found it twice. So uh, I do think that that was something that was kind of identified. Um, obviously, uh, yeah. If Noah Lock said they, they knew it was coming, then yeah, so, someone. But I, I just thought the way Florida defended it, they knew they knew what it was. So uh, you, I, I feel like you can tell once guys start jumping to switches instead of responding to screens and having to switch. Uh, you know, you know that they kind of know what's going on. And uh, you know what, uh, White actually like White might be modest because that's definitely his uh what he does but i mean um they've got bryce douglas the director of scouting and they've also gotten an assistant who's going to be uh yeah uh, doing the scout so it actually just straight up could have been it could have been one of them and 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 white was actually just being like uh modest because it it could have actually been something identified by one of his staff members but um it also could have just been modesty because that's uh that's kind of coach white's thing it's uh he's a modest guy but uh and and, hey it's one thing to know what they're doing uh, it's also another thing to like really properly defend it. So, I mean, the players did, did so well. Cause I mean, even when you know exactly what a team's going to run, like not allowing them to inbound the ball on a massive basketball court is still like tough to do. So the players, the players stepped up and uh, so that's, but I, ju- I just really, really love when like the coach, the coaches do their job and the players do their job. I mean, that's just like beautiful basketball and, and you know, Florida fans should be, should be really proud of that one play. Yeah. The other question that Jordan asked related to that play was, uh, I guess White said, he was contemplating calling a timeout and he said, can you guys walk us through the mindset in a situation like that? What, what are the pros and cons of calling a timeout? And I think, I think that can be read as like, because there's a hive, I feel like there's a dangerous way to read that comment by white. And I think that what he probably meant was had Noah caught the ball and gotten himself into trouble. He knew he had a timeout. Um, but you know, I think I went back and looked at the full quote and, you know, White said, but then I saw Noah was going to the basket 
and you know we kind of figured uh, they would take their chances because they had Omar Payne um, at the rim for a putback if need be. So I think um, you know obviously Noah made the layup and, and made kind of a nice move to avoid the shot block. Yeah, I guess I'm actually ill prepared for the podcast because yeah, I didn't actually oh, listen to the post game okay. stuff. But uh, but so to hear uh, but to hear him say he wanted a timeout, I I, uh, I do think that just something about Noah Locke is I mean going to the hoop and finishing with a layup is, is not the best part of his game. And you've also got to think straight up like look at the angle of where Coach White would be seeing that from. So by the time that Noah Locke caught the ball, it would be really tough for White to see that he actually has a clear lane to the hoop. He might have uh, he might have seen you know he might have once Locke gets that ball thrown over the top, White seeing looking through a lot of bodies, and uh, he just might not have recognized that uh, it was as open as it was for Locke. So uh, uh, I think that's kind of just part of the thought process, and I do think it's something that like you know I'm I'm huge on timeout usage. I when I coach which I know exactly how many timeouts I have at all times. And so I'm sure when White knows he has a timeout there, he just, you know, he's thinking about every possibility. And it's like, uh, hey, if he doesn't like the way Alabama lines up uh, before they inbound the ball, he might use a timeout. Yeah, if they get a deflection, they might call a timeout. If Alabama throws a ball out of bounds, he might call, like, he's probably just looking at all the, all the possible options and saying like, hey, if this happens, I might want to call a timeout. And uh, when Noah Locke gets the steal and he might for a split second not know if he has that straight line layup, uh, yeah, he might think of calling a timeout for sure. Yeah, no, Florida and, and Florida had Chris, uh, Chris, Chris sets out of timeouts down the stretch, including the uh, it was either the Neymar three point play or the or the Blackshear three that cut it to two that, that was out of a timeout. I'm not, uh, I don't, sorry, apologies for not remembering precisely uh, which one it was, but it was good offense. And, and so, you know, I kind of, I, I, that's a good point about court angles. Um, especially, uh, Eric. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know. I think we, we've spent most of the podcast talking about the win over Alabama. Um, I'll say this. This is as tough an ask on a short rest turnaround, you know, other than like a trip to rough. Um, this is a pretty tall ask. And I know people are going to get mad, or maybe not mad is the right word, but – People might be skeptical of that and say, "Well, you know, this is a this is a South Carolina team that that has lost to uh, some bad basketball teams. They have. Uh, Stetson is terrible, um, but they've also had a week off. They'll be well rested. Um, Frank Martin teams are always physical. You know, it's going to be a grind. You're on the road. You're on short rest. Not only you're on short rest, but you played 50 minutes." And you played 50 minutes from behind, which, uh, you know, is, is harder. I can tell you that. Um, so, you know, I think a big ask for a young team, can you, can you kind of handle success? Uh, can you build off what happened? You know, certainly to me, that's the biggest challenge. Cause when you look at South Carolina, just from a basketball standpoint, uh, they don't make a lot of sense, Eric. And they're not particularly good offensively, in particular. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, one thing that has to be talked about is like, how does this team beat Virginia, and how do they score seventy points on Virginia <laughs> um, yeah. at, at Virginia? Uh, so yeah. again, I went and watched the game, and like, I know this is going to sound like just like the worst, least thought out analysis I could give you, but it was like 
they were truly just hitting ridiculous shots. And it's a team that doesn't have shot makers. And just on that day, they were coming down with like, you know, Virginia was defending for 27 seconds of the shot clock. And then someone like Jire Bolden just like turns and hits something ridiculous. Or like Justin Manea, who, or Manaya, who's like a 20% three-point shooter, hits some clutch ones. And uh, like, I, it was just, like, I, there was nothing, like, I wanted to see like, hey, what kind of, what kind of sets are they running? Like, uh, how did they score? Like, what, how's it going to affect? Florida and I mean I I actually well I'm gonna ask you about this in a second just uh but um uh you know I was like I wanted to know what they what they actually do but uh it was really just uh you know Virginia defended really well and and South Carolina made shots in a in a magnificent fashion and then you know you look to the next game uh and they play Stetson the 320th ranked team on Ken Palm and they lose because they don't make shots so I, I do think that that was just like a uh just something that, well, I, I mean, going back to actually the Virginia game is South Carolina is the team that runs a lot of, uh, of their plays for their post players. They want to play through the, uh, the inside. You play a pack line team like Virginia, they're not going to allow that to happen. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of kept the ball out of, out of the inside and out of uh, what South Carolina, Carolina wanted to do. But, uh, Neil, what I wanted to ask you about is uh, what, do you, what do you think of, of Frank Martin as a coach? I, I feel like he is someone who is – there's people who love him. There's people who don't like him. Um, you know, plenty of people on the middle. I'm just interested in what your takes of him are as uh, as as a basketball. Well, I'm kind of in the I, you know I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I, you know, I think I think is uh, I'm a big fan of Frank Martin, the human being. First of all, I'm a big fan of Frank Martin, defensive culture. Um, you know, I, I really do think that this is still a sport where especially at the collegiate level, you know, and increasingly, well, I guess in the modern NBA, I shouldn't even say increasingly, and in the modern NBA, you better defend. Uh, so, you know, I think all that. I, I don't think that his offensive scheme, when we talk about, and this is a key distinction for, like, high versus Frank Martin, right? When we talk about offensive ineptitude, you know, we need to talk about Frank Martin's South Carolina teams because they're just never even remotely competitive on the offensive side of the basketball with the exception of the team that went to the final four. Um, they haven't, they just haven't scored uh, very well, Eric. And, you know, the other problem that Frank has had, at least in South Carolina. And again, I think some of it is infrastructure at Carolina. I really do. Um, especially because in state, uh, Brad Brennell is a pretty good recruiter, not a great coach. Um, and Clemson's facilities are so much better. So I think some of that limits what he's capable of doing. At the same time, we, we mentioned the kid from Alabama uh, that, that grew up a mile from South Carolina, recruiting Miss. You know, there was the article in The Athletic where Zion Williamson's um, stepfather said that, that South Carolina was the leader for a year. Uh didn't finish. Now I've been I've been chastised on Twitter for suggesting that Carolina ever thought they were going to land uh, Zion, but it's nonsense. I mean, if the stepdad says they were the leader for a year, I feel like you know maybe they weren't. Maybe they didn't think in the end that they would win, but they certainly must have for, for a while. Uh, John Morant, they were his only Power Six offer, and they couldn't get him to come. They couldn't get him to, to flip from Murray State of all places. So I think. Uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of in the middle. Like, I think I think Frank gets out the most out of what he gets on defense, and I think his players play really hard for him, Eric. Uh, but 
you know, I think you got to ask yourself, is that enough? And what's the ceiling for a coach like that? Is it, is it one spectacular, albeit very unlikely run to the final four as a 10 seed? It might be. Yeah. So I, so I would actually be on the side of, I actually think he's a really good coach. And uh, I, I know that like when you're talking about college coaches, you kind of have to, it is kind of an all encompassing, like recruiting is part of being a coach. But I, but in terms of like actual, like basketball coaching, like if you were to take like five equal basketball players against five equal basketball players and you put some other power, power six coach on the other side and, and Frank Martin on one sideline, like I'm probably going to side with Frank Martin against a whole lot of coaches. Like I actually really, really like a lot of the stuff that Frank Martin runs. And like, I know some people would say that like, man, their offenses are not very good. Like you alluded to, <laughs> uh, but I actually think in terms of, of like the sets they run and and the way that their offenses work i actually think that he's he's actually a good offensive coach in my opinion i I really actually do think that uh, um just the uh the how limited his recruiting options are and and i mean he is someone who is going to uh recruit his his the guys he he recruits a person a certain personality and he won't waver on that obviously and i think that that's really admirable but it also means that you're maybe not always going to have the most talented plays but uh, but I actually do think he's a wonderful, just like X's and O's basketball coach. And I actually think he's a really, really good offensive X and O's basketball coach, even though the numbers would uh, make you think that I'm an idiot. Uh, so I, so what, going back to what you were mentioning, ta- talking about trying to uh, play against South Carolina on short rest, uh, I actually do think part of the problem that's, or part of the reason that's the problem is they actually, they run a lot of good stuff. So uh, I, I, that will be really interesting to see how they respond. And I mean, hey, uh, I we just you know I think we just saw how good Florida scouted Alabama, so let's hope the uh, hope the scout is just as good against uh, against South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, look, um, we finally have somebody that can kind of. I mean, I guess it's really unfair to Kavarius Hayes to like get on him about this because he was trying to deal with Chris Silva too. Um, but maybe maybe for once, um, Mike Kotsar, the Estonian assassin will not murder Florida. Um, they do like to run a lot of stuff through him uh, from what from what I've watched of them. I don't know if they're still doing that, but it seems like he's kind of the focal point of their interior offense. Uh, and then, you know, I, they've got a guy that, that I – some people think is a lottery pick. I don't – I haven't seen it really with my two eyes, but kind of interested on your take on uh, A.J. Lawson. Yeah. I, he's their star. I mean <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, I mean, so uh, a, a rare person that I have watched since high school because he's Canadian. And I mean, I, I honestly just think the fact that some people think he's a, you know, first round, high first round, maybe even lottery. I, I think that honestly just speaks to how weak the uh, the NBA draft is this year. Uh, with all due respect to AJ Lawson, who's a wonderful player. I just I just don't think in a regular year he, he's anywhere near that consideration. Uh, I think he's going to be a player that makes an NBA roster, but I think, in, uh, yeah, I just don't think he's a, he's not your prototypical first round guy, but anyways, he is uh, clearly kind of by the recruiting rankings and also by just the eye test, the most talented player uh, that, that that's on the roster. Uh, I mean, my coats are might be, uh, uh, might be a better player, but in terms of just like talent, uh, it's definitely Lawson. And, and he does bring a little bit of that, uh, that perimeter play that we're not normally kind of used to seeing from, uh, from South Carolina, and and something that also uh, Lawson does really well, and this is this is actually one thing that I think is really interesting about South Carolina. It, 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 like one of the great myths of college basketball is that like we've talked about it because like Florida plays them, but how like everyone thinks that Baylor is a grinded out defensive team, but you 
actually look that like every year their offense is awesome and their offense is always better than their defense. Uh, I feel like people look at South Carolina and they think that they're just like, you know, slow grinded out because Frank Martin looks like the godfather on the sideline and he's, he's terrifying. <laughs> so people just think like, Oh, t- toughness uh, defense. Uh, but I mean, this year they're 33rd in average possession. Last year they were 25th in possession yeah. length. Uh, you know, you go back, they were, you know, 94th, 64th. Uh, so they actually play really fast and, and get, at this, they even run more, or sorry, they have more percentage of their shots in transition than Alabama does. A- Alabama was at like 21.5, I think, before the game. Uh, right now, South Carolina is at 23.5% of their shots coming in transition. So uh, I-, I know a lot of people are going to think like, hey, you know, Florida has got to go grind it out against South Carolina. And realistically, it's like, uh, no, they're actually going to have to go and run with South Carolina. So it's uh, coming off of an Alabama game, I, I think it actually might be kind of helpful to play South Carolina now because the you know Florida just had to really work on their transition defense to be prepared for Alabama. Uh, now they're going to play another team that really you know really thrives in transition, and that's a lot of their offense. So uh, if I think Florida is going to be able to to kind of focus on the same things defensively they they did against Alabama, and I think that's something that'll uh, help them in this in the short preparation. Yeah, another thing I wanted to mention before, because and, and no one's going to care about this if Florida loses, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it anyway, just so that we have it on the record, Eric. Um, in their loss to Stetson, because you you brought up the great point and why I mentioned liking Frank Martin, the human being, a whole lot. Uh, like I admire the way that he has a set of principles, and it's kind of his way or the highway in his program, and you know I hope it is at at, at our program where where I'm at. Um, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, but AJ Lawson played 13 minutes against Stetson. Uh, he did not start. And I don't know what that was all about, but I guarantee you there was a reason for it. And by the way, uh, they took him out with about, I don't know, 10 minutes to go in the game. And, and he didn't come in until the game was well decided. And he came in with like walk ons. At that point. So Frank Martin has like a kind of weird history of doing that with some people might call it weird, I guess, with his star players. But that it's pretty, you know, I, I don't know. I just think it's part of who he is as a person. Um, so the, the other two problems that they've had offense offensively is that they are playing fast and they get fouled a good amount. But they're 335th in the country in free throw percentage. Um, they shoot 60 percent from the line. That's Ooh. that's that's very bad. Against Stetson, they were 12 to 24, and they lost by seven. Um, and then, then this team, a little more than most of Frank's teams, uh, really is high volume on threes. And, you know, Florida fans can relate to this part. If you're high volume on threes, what do you not want to be? You don't want to be bad at shooting them. Um, and in their losses, uh, Eric, they've shot uh, 23.1% from beyond the arc. So, um, that's that's you know that's that's how it happens and they're at present they were they're twenty eight point six percent for the season on threes so they've taken the third most threes in the SEC and they're thirteenth in the SEC in percentage. Yeah, so there really are a lot of uh, a lot of kind of similar traits between uh, between South Carolina and Alabama and uh, one thing it's also interesting like you were talking about their their amounts of threes but their uh, how they're not very efficient at hitting them uh, they also love to run you know twenty three point five percent of their shots being in transition uh but they're in the 12th percentile nationally uh, at 0.896 points per possession in transition which is even lower than florida's so they're actually you know once again they're committed to running um even when they miss and turn the ball 
over. So, uh, yeah, you, you're going to see a lot of kind of similar things to, to Alabama. And, and, you know, I'm definitely still concerned about the uh, the short rest situation, but it's not like uh, it's not like they have to get a uh, prepare for a drastically different team than, uh, than Alabama. I think that there is going to be a lot of the uh, a lot of the same kind of principles of how they want to get back in, in transition, how they want to defend the three point line. Uh, there's going to be some similarities there that ho- that hopefully help them uh, put together a good, good performance. Yeah, and you mentioned Jair Bolden, kind of the guy that can hit some ridiculous shots, kind of filling that role that uh, that Hassani, uh, what was it, Hassani Gravis? Blitz yeah. <laughs> with last season in particular. Um, you know, and then, and then the last thing that makes it hard, I guess, is we, we alluded to it, but obviously just the way they defend. Uh, we just saw a team that plays with overwhelming ball pressure um florida has not been tremendous in my opinion at dealing with defenses that get out into the passing lanes uh that's kind of the biggest thing i think with with south carolina's defense is just the way that they choke off passing lanes you have to reverse the ball effectively you have to move the ball against the south carolina defense yeah i mean that's something that they that south carolina it does do so well, and especially on display in their final four run, is is the way that they deny ball pressure, and that is what makes it so tough to play because they have guys who can defend the ball one on one, and while really pressuring you, uh, and then they, you know, the the other wings know that, so they're going to just try to take away the passing lanes and say like, hey, uh, you're going to have to beat this guy one on one. So that is going to be tough. So uh, how Florida, you know, like Florida's been playing so much ball screen, uh, I think that's going to continue because I think they might find it tough to get the ball moving side to side at times. So, so calling just some of the, uh, some of the ball screen action that like keeps the ball in Andrew Nemar's hands as he walks down the floor. And, and then you just get into a ball screen without having to, uh, to move the ball too much. Uh, I think that might be their best option. And uh, you know, the, my memory could be wrong. I guess I could look at the stats from past years, but uh, South Carolina is also actually playing like a lot of their possessions in zone this year, which is like something I don't really remember from South Carolina, but uh, maybe you do. And I'm just, blanking or some of the listeners remember and I'm, I'm just blanking but uh, they're also playing a lot more zone and i am interested interested to see if they do that again against the gators but um you know anyone that has access to uh to film or any analytic type tools will see that florida is actually like amazing against zones this year they're at like 1.3 points per possession against zone so like i i don't think teams will be in a hurry to zone florida but uh <laughs> yeah there, there's a chance that they mix in something different that, that the gators haven't seen yeah no i mean i I think that they won't do it as much. I, I, defensively, you know, they're going to do some of the stuff that Xavier did, and if Florida attacks it like that, I think that's, you know, probably going to lead the Gators in, in, in decent shape. I feel like they're fine. 14 played a good amount of, um, you know, Thornwell and Notice out there on it. They're just, you know, tremendous at, at rotating and both pretty long. Um, but... But I don't know. I, I'd have to look that up. <laughs> I feel like that's probably true, but I don't want to. I don't want to say like unequivocally. Yeah, they played plenty of zone. They made the final floor, and then we look it up, and it'll be like they played three percent of their possessions. <laughs> uh, you're you're <laughs> you're out of your mind. Um, but yeah, uh, you know it's interesting. And they're a team that I and, and of course they're a team that defensively right now uh, has missed. You know, it seems pretty obvious to state. I guess it's stating the obvious, but uh, but uh, Chris Silva's absence on the interior has has been somewhat of a problem. As good as Mike Kotsar is, you know, as a fundamental player, 
kind of interesting, like, mirror between him and Terry Blackshear with, like, Blackshear just being a better basketball player. But very similar in, like, I imagine Mike Kotar to be, like, one of the most intelligent players that Frank Martin's ever coached. And, you know, he doesn't, like, do dumb things. Yeah, he is. Uh, and obviously just, you know, noted Gator killer. Um, he's just been uh, he's been really good. I mean, especially in the times where Florida is uh, – uh, has been thinner in the front court, but I, I I see the way that like it's just like Kerry Blackshear's the unluckiness with with uh, with foul calls has just been ridiculous so far this year. Like just it just is crazy. Like different crews, different competition. He just keeps getting like phantom fouls called on him. So I'm like terrified against uh, against South Carolina, where like for so many years, uh, Kavarius Hayes was picking up like the softest fouls playing against against Mike Kotsar and uh, and Chris Silva, there's part of me that's like, oh, like, you, you just know that Blackshear is going to get, you know, two or three just, like, ter- terrible foul calls on him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. If, I mean, if he stays in the game, that's that's a really marquee uh, matchup just because, uh, yeah, like, they're going to go through Kotsar and they, on the inside. And, uh, you know, I definitely think they're going to go, th- you know, A.J. Lawson's going to be important. But I do think that A.J. Lawson is someone who is uh, uh, really key in transition in there. They're, they're kind of secondary break, but I, I do think in the half court when it slows, it, it goes through Kotsar. So how Florida defends that and how the kind of one-on-one matchup goes. Um, hey, if Florida wants to play the bigs, which is something you could do a little bit against South Carolina, uh, maybe you get Omar Payne for, uh, for Co- on Kotsar for a little bit more time and uh, you kind of limit the risk of, of Blackshear picking up fouls. That's, that's something. And, and again, I actually thought Dante, ba- like, Dante Bassett, like, I, I, I'm not saying he should have gotten a game more I, because I thought Omar Payne is playing good. Uh, just the way that the uh, and Alabama wasn't playing particularly big, so there just wasn't a lot of minutes for him, unfortunately. But when Dante Bassett came in the game, I, I thought he was awesome. There was a stretch where he – or sorry, not a stretch. There was one play where he um, blitzed the pick and roll like better than any other player on Florida did in their uh, – that kind of way that they wanted to guard pick and rolls. Uh, he went and blitzed it. He trapped. It was awesome. Then he recovered. He sprinted back to the paint, and then he took that charge. Like I thought it was like an amazing defensive sequence. So uh, I thought he played pretty well. So maybe he's someone when you want to get a few more minutes and, uh, and he's someone who can kind of take the task of uh Kotsar for a bit. Yeah. Especially on the road. I, you know, I, again, first, uh, first conference road game. I mean, obviously the Gators have played in, in two historic environments in their road games, uh, you know, two college basketball's most, most historic best environments in, in Gamble Pavilion and Hinkle Fieldhouse. So, they're not going to be stunned by conference play on the road. That's why you play such a hard schedule. It's one of the benefits. But traditionally, Mike White teams have been very good on the road. Obviously, this Gators team has yet to win a game uh, on a road floor uh, while being quite good on neutral floors for the most part. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, look, for me, three things. Eric, uh, how does A.J. Lawson respond from from the benching? Does he Does he come out and just – light the world on fire i think there's there's certainly a chance that that's something that occurs how florida defends him will be pretty fascinating interested as to your thoughts on that um and then you know how does florida respond how do you handle success and then yeah we we just broke down uh kind of mike coats versus our bigs and and i you know you can't undersell that coats averages 10 and 6 and is a really crafty now veteran player that that has uh been been in some big moments he's been in the final four yeah i mean with uh with aj lesson i mean he's someone who's kind of a little bit in the, the shea gill just alexander bowl like six six really long and, and 
I, I don't think that AJ Lawson's a great athlete. I, I think that that's part of the reason I'm like not super high on him as a, uh, as an NBA guy. And, uh, uh, you know, Shai Gildas Alexander wasn't a great athlete, but he just, his feel and his offensive touch was just another level, but AJ Lawson doesn't have that. But, but Lawson is someone who, uh, because of his length, uh, can really just like protect the ball on drives because he can keep it so far from his defender. And then he also just can finish really well because he's so long. So he takes contact with the ball extended away from his body. The shot blocker can't get there and, and he can lay it in. So uh, I think that Andrew Nembhardt would be a pretty interesting matchup. Uh, but at the same time, like you look at the threats that they have on the perimeter, I think the like natural matchup would be to put Scotty Lewis on him. Yeah. Uh, just because I, I think that they're, you know, it's just as simple as AJ Lawson is the best perimeter player uh, on the Gamecocks. So let's put our best perimeter defender on him. Uh, the size works. And then uh, there's kind of some other uh, smaller guards on, on South Carolina, but not, or I mean, not smart, like smaller than AJ Lawson, but, right. uh, but not guys that are like super speedy or anything. So I think you kind of like your, uh, you, you know, you could put Noah Locke and Andrew, Andrew Nemhart on them without, you know, fear of them getting burned by smaller guys or, uh, or anything like that. So I, I would like to see Scotty on him, but at the same time, like Andrew Nemhart's got size and Noah Locke just had a really good defensive game against, uh, against Kyra Lewis. So there, there's a few options, but uh, I, I think that there's games where like, this is a game where I think you just look at like, they've got one really good perimeter player. Uh, let's put Scotty Lewis on him. Yep. Makes sense to me. Okay, everybody. It's going to be a uh, Tuesday night tip. I think it's at seven. I haven't, I, I'm not sure. Um, but, but definitely, Tuesday night, turn, quick turnaround game. First and two on the road this week. Uh, so, Gators won't be home uh, again until January 14th. But but uh, we'll have, uh, you know, shows talking about South Carolina and, and, and Missouri. And then we'll uh, welcome Eric to the to the States. So, uh, oh, so yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there on the 14th. So, next home game will be, uh, will be with me and my wife in attendance. That'll be great. That'll be great. So, uh, everybody take care and. I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. Bye-bye.